I've always felt that, like the simple appreciation of beauty in your immediacy is a natural antidepressant. In a way, we don't have much time uh, in this life to do anything but appreciate. I think sometimes <laughs> appreciation should be taking up most of our time. Welcome to Square Mile. I'm Joel Shupak. <laughs> if that laugh isn't familiar to you, let me introduce you to a man named Speed. Oh, yeah. Speed Levitch. I'm, uh, I'm Speed Levitch. Um, I first learned of Speed from the 1998 film The Cruise. It's basically a documentary about his life. At the time, Speed worked on one of those double-decker tourist buses in New York City. You've probably seen these sort of absurd buses with open-air top decks that make loops through the major tourist spots. But to call Speed Levitch a tour guide is like saying Michelangelo was pretty good with his hands. In one of my favorite scenes in the movie, he says that his goal for each tour is for the guests to feel like every day they've lived thus far is an abstract wreckage abstract wreckage that, that might have happened, happened but is probably a delusion and that this and that this is the first real day of their lives speed managed to create a totally theatrical surreal poetic gorgeous experience from maybe the least likely pulpit and cruising or the cruise which is the title of the film is a phrase he uses a lot to describe a certain way of being in the world this is a total scientific observation. Uh, not a scientist. I just think there's two basic ways to move down any sidewalk. And uh, there's the commuting kind of style, which is to travel along with the assumption that every godforsaken human being currently on this planet is in my way, in my way consciousness. And then there's the cruising, which we were talking about, which is the appreciation of the beauty in your immediacy immediately which is more open to appreciating the beauty of the unexpected and the unexpected participation of other peoples in our lives. You're the commuting or you're cruising. He still leads tours, by the way. Now they're much more intimate walking tours. When I was thinking about starting this podcast, Speed Levitch was a big inspiration to me. So last January, when I was in New York with my friend Amanda, I reached out. Speed led us on a remarkable tour of Greenwich Village, and afterwards he was happy to sit down for an interview but I didn't think ahead enough to find a quiet place to record. So the three of us wandered around Greenwich Village from loud bar to even louder bar until we settled on a British tea shop and restaurant called Tea and Sympathy. They agreed to let us do the interview as long as we each ordered a meal. So we hunched around a tiny square table amid plates of Welsh rarebit, shepherd's pie, and fried mushrooms on toast. So there's a lot of background noise. We talked about Speed's early tour guiding career and my new podcast. We talked about Moses, Star Wars, the grid plan, so much. I mean, mainly he talks about all of it. I didn't say a whole lot and just let him roll. Here goes. I'm, uh, I'm Speed Levitch, a sweaty wreckage of an attempt at a man perspiring well beyond the ability for repair. Uh, Hang on. I'm just going to stop it right there. Did you catch all that? Are you hearing this guy? There's no other way to say this. Speed Levitch is about to bring it. So buckle up. Let's try that again. A sweaty wreckage of an attempt at a man perspiring well beyond the ability for repair. Uh, New York City flaneur, tour guide, adventurer. There was, a, what was, there was some <laughs> vocabulary word in there. Oh yeah, okay, that's, okay, yeah, that's a French word, but it's in the English dictionary. Flaneur is... Um, a, wa a city-dwelling wanderer. 
his or her role in society is the appreciation of beauty and aimless walking. Where, where, where did you grow up? I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital on Fifth Avenue, 105th Street. I grew up in Riverdale, which is the North Bronx. However, I was always bouncing back and forth between Kansas City and New York, which is an interesting conversation. So I had the Midwestern influence. Although I mostly grew up in New York, I went to school in the Bronx, high school in the Bronx, and NYU for school. So the first 35 years of my life, I really didn't live anywhere other than New York. And I guess I was called a New Yorker, although I'm skeptical about that term for a couple reasons. One is, is that a term in general is what happens when language and laziness hang out, a systematic system of syllables emanating from mouth noises that come from quivers in our esophagus that are here to help us move the day along. Just like that, a term New Yorker. I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, even from the 17th century, this place was uh, international, and that was the whole point of it. Right now, there's more languages being spoken on the streets of New York City than I could possibly name or even know exist. So even just the whole idea of New Yorker, to me, is a a desperate attempt to punctuate kind of an avalanche of, of languages and peoples. I mean, many of them enemies in other parts of the world that are on the B train tonight. The point is, it's uh, what, what New York City is, is uh, very much like the bar in the original Star Wars film. A bunch of extraterrestrial pilots from all over the galaxy that really have nothing in common, but the one thing they do have in common is they're trying to avoid the Empire. <laughs> and that's what New York City is. What is the Empire in that metaphor? I more and more feel that the empire is the mundane, the, uh, the status quo of our world, which too often means the complete deprivation of basic civil liberties or worse. But even in this city, the mundane is an oppressive force, uh, a deadening or a, a, a numbness to uh, the everyday and the, and the possibilities of the everyday. And, and how do you combat that yourself? Well, the tour guide's essential role is to illuminate the mundane, to raise the stakes of this reality by appreciating it. How, when did you first get into leading tours? Well, I was graduating from New York University. I was studying theater and writing, creative writing, playwriting. I remember somebody said to me in passing, you know you're going to have to get a job. And I was so confused. So there I was, desperately trying to figure out how it could possibly be constructive to society. It just seemed unlikely. It seemed really unlikely. <laughs> why, why do you think that is? And yeah, I just didn't see uh, myself being constructive. I mean, that was never my outset. I never had that goal. And I, it never occurred to me that that was something I was supposed to be working towards. Or What were the goals you had at that time? Self-expression, freedom, <laughs> love. <laughs> A lot of vague things. And <laughs> I said to myself, you know, if I had the theater and the writing that I'd been doing and mix it with that, mix it together with the history, which I was interested in, and the city, which I was walking around in, maybe tour guiding would be the perfect nexus for my qualities and interests. In a lot of cities, you don't need a tour guide's license, but in New York, you do. Uh, consumer affairs, um, multiple choice exam. I got my first tour guide's license before I even graduated school. And then uh, I ended up on the double-decker buses, which... Um, I mean, 
let's respect. It's the most divine, eccentric tourist vehicle invented in the history of touring humankind. I mean, <laughs> complete genius. To be on an open-air deck, 14 feet above the sidewalk, above every neighborhood of the city, it's like being granted an omniscient narrator shape to this epic novel unfolding in front of us, upon us. It's the real United Nations. I was meeting people from every habitable continent of the world on a daily basis. It was, a, it was and is a, what I like to call a shit job, and I think we all know, uh, I mean, shit jobs are just part of the world, and in a way, it doesn't matter what genre or vocation, a shit job is a shit job. When I first started out, I was like, this will be a good job to do until I get a foothold in the theater. And then, over time, the tour became my theater. Every loop was so different, you know, just like theater. The crowd was different every time. I'd have one crowd that was so appreciative, listening to every syllable I said, hanging off their seat, falling into the aisles, emotional. And then the next loop, like an hour later, people falling asleep on each other, drool coming out of their mouths. <laughs> As an artist, I'd be like, oh my God, the, it's the greatest double-decker loop I've ever done. And the people would be like, where's Abercrombie and Fitch? <laughs> I often think about, um, it's a, I, I guess it's a quote from, I think it's Paramahansa Yogananda. He said, um, don't forget to laugh at the world. You know, and that's a really important errand to have every on your list of errands every day. <laughs> yeah, don't forget to laugh at the world. I saw the inherent theatricality of it, and um, and, and and the tour is, I think, a, a very ancient form of theater. One of my early mentors in the history of tourism is Moses. I mean, um, today he's mostly known for being an early prophet of Judaism, where it's as a tour guide is where he really achieved. <laughs> He's like an early, um, he's an early Charlie Parker of, uh, of bebop tourism. The first tour guide ever to forego a route. And if that was not audacious enough, he then takes his tour group straight into the middle of a desert and just starts wandering. Uh, not one refund. Incredible, off the charts incredible. But there was some, wasn't there some, there was some revolts happening? They died off. <laughs> oh, that's, that doesn't count as a refund. No refund. Of course, it's taken me a long time to arrive at some of these recent tours I've been working on, which, uh, again, are opportunities to utilize history and architectural appreciation and stuff like that as vehicles to take further into the now. Because the essential landmark at all times is now, is our moment. This is our time to decorate the reality. This is our enormous now in the history of this incredible city. We are conjoining with this saga and we are the current living climax of this story. And so for me, it's a very important that the walking tours be pronouncements of intimacy and togetherness as we waltz across this vast alienation. <laughs> That's how I see it. That's what's going on. <laughs> so yeah, even the history and the architectural appreciation, I love it. But it's really just hanging off the most important event, which is our togetherness. But I feel like there's a fine line between, like, showing something authentic and, like, almost ruining something beautiful and kind of unknown and hidden in a city. Uh -huh. do, you, do you wrestle with that at all? 
Yeah, I think about that a lot. Like New York is a great example where there's a lot of details that get molested or laminated. It's just the way of the West. Okay, uh, this is a, just a great example of a detail that I, um, on, the, on the Central Park tour, there's something called Randall's Pike, which happens on a specific rock that is just uh, above the 64th Street uh, Trespass Road. When the grid plan in New York was new, it's amazing to think about it tonight, because we're in, so ensconced in the grid plan tonight. Seems like it was written in stone, or it's biblical or something. It started out as a blueprint. It was a theory. It was a thought. The grid plan was chipped away from the solid rock of this island. So in 1807 or so, when it was a new idea, there was this guy who worked for the city named John Randall. And this guy, like, his job was to go out and demarcate the original intersections for the theoretical grid plan across this ragged topography. At the time, half of it was barely passable. The other half of the times, he's knocking in his spikes in the middle of people's farms. And they'd come at him and be like, what the hell are you doing on my land? And he'd be knocking in his little pikes and he'd be like, I'm sorry, this is 64th and Broadway. <laughs> and there's stories about how he used to, people used to throw vegetables at him. They used to sick his dogs, their dogs on him, chase them off their land. Like, get the hell off my land, what the hell are you doing? And um, this guy, John Randall, worked at it for 10 years. Knocking in his little spikes all the way from the uh, bottom of the island to 145th Street. It took him 10 years. As far as we know, there's one Randall's Pike in its original place where he himself hammered it into the island. And it's in this specific rock that you have to know about that's just north of the 64th Street trespass in the middle of Central Park. Central Park was not part of the original plan. Where this pike was would have been like 65th and 6th, which doesn't exist because it's in the middle of Central Park. It's this minor little artifact that's a huge window view into the past. And when you read articles about it, they don't print the exact location because they're afraid that it's going to be vandalized or molested in some way. It's so sacred. It's so authentic. It's such a strange moment of the early 19th century still with us in the middle of all this hubbub and shenanigans. And so... When I point it out to people in Central Park, it's like, it's deep, it's deep like that. It's a secret. I'm trusting everyone with a secret. As the Tao Te Ching says, uh, trust the untrustworthy. <laughs> I always try to abide by that. <laughs> There's some sort of weird comfort in knowing that that Randall's Pike is right there where he hammered it into that rock. And at the same time, like, don't let too many people know about exactly where it is. I'm very excited about this podcast. I think it's a great idea, not only for a podcast, but for a consciousness. I would love to go back over, like, describe it to me. If it's cool, I'd like to hear your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called Square Mile. The, each episode is an exploration of a square mile of space. And what that means, I'm still figuring out. And, and I think what that means for each episode could be vastly different. And I'm just really interested in the idea of place, that like, Places are really different from each other, and like there's a uniqueness there that is easy to miss, and and takes like a real attention to um, to fully appreciate. So each different square mile is the episode, 
and therefore different texture, different focus, different, totally different. Like it's different, different worlds, really, different square mile. What a brave new world with such characters in it, kind of a feeling. Yeah. And I know, and it's like, I love how each square mile is so different. It might as well be a different universe. But uh, to a lot of people, I don't think they recognize that as they're going about their days. They, and they sort of just imagine the world's kind of being the same everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so my goal. So my goal for the show is like one, sort of just show this vastness of possibility in the world, and also like encourage people to hear the show and then be like, oh, I wonder what's going on in my neighborhood. You yes. Know? Yes. Yes. You're, you're investigating a grandiose Baskin Robbins here, and it's like it's a beautiful thing. I think, um, and I congratulate you on the idea, but also on the actualization. Um, you know, like, our thoughts can surprise us at any time. Our thoughts do surprise us all the time. To get up out of a chair and actually do something about it is special. It's a, it's a great podcast. It's a great idea for a podcast. It's going to be a great adventure, and that's important, too. Square Mile is produced by me, Joel Shupak, with help this episode from Amanda Tetro. A big thanks to Speed Levich for sharing time with us. There's a link to his website where you can book your own tour and more episodes at squaremilepodcast.com. It'll be a little while before the next episode comes out, but in the meantime, I told a story for another podcast that I think you'd really love. The show is called Nocturne, and as you might guess, it explores what happens after the sun goes down. My story is about the two years I spent guarding a Christmas tree stand in New York City in the middle of the night. If you think you can imagine what that's like, you have no idea. So subscribe to Nocturne and you'll hear it as soon as it comes out. I still sell Christmas trees, by the way. Now I work during the day at 231st and Broadway in the Bronx. Come say hello if you're nearby. In fact, I'm actually recording this in a little shack on the sidewalk facing a row of Christmas trees. That's why there's so much noise in the background. Let's see what's happening outside. Honey, what is the price range? $15 to $120. Oh, well, that gets and I, got, I got everything in between. And so like the $15 one? That. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, with the, that little one there with the stand included would be $25. Okay. Until next time.